0: Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind the scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them.
1: A couple of the nurses testified that Dunch would operate in the same surgical scrubs every day and that they knew that because there was a hole in the scrubs and they could see his butt because he didn't wear underwear.
0: Oh my God.
1: <laughs> oh God. Okay. Okay. You know, just lots of little fun stuff strange tidbits where you're kind of like What this this happened like this kind of thing goes on
0: please rise part is now session all right well welcome to the great trials podcast as always this is steve lowry and i'm with uh yvonne godfrey yvonne how are you doing
2: i'm good i'm good steve how are you
0: I, I was just thinking, as because I just said as always, and my wife uh, was telling me she's like, you need to stop saying as always when you introduce the show because you know everybody knows who you are. Just just get on with it. Um, <laughs> but of course, I screwed that up. Well, um, you know,
2: you have to find it. So you have to find some way to throw it over to me and.
0: Right. <laughs> you know. <Exactly.
2: laughs> um You don't. You don't pay me a different compliment. You use a different adjective every time anymore. I know. We got rid I of that. So. I know.
0: <laughs> Unfortunately, Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Well, Yvonne, we have to. uh, I I think we have to give a a warning to our listeners that there might be some foul language in this uh, um, podcast. So, if you have uh, minors or children around, uh, be a little careful because some of the evidence that came out in this case involved some uh, some pretty strong vulgar language. So, uh, so I'm giving that warning and letting everybody know.
2: We know. We know the podcast is a huge hit with kids but
0: yes, they're going to have to exactly. miss this one. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, I, I, who doesn't want their five-year-old <laughs> listening to a bunch of lawyers talk about how you try a case? <laughs> um, well, uh, so Yvonne, this is the uh, the second in a two-part series that we've been doing, uh, and we our previous show, and I, uh, I encourage everyone to go back and listen to that one if they haven't listened to that one first, uh, was with Kay Van Way, and it has to do with the case of Christopher Dunch who was a doctor in uh, Dallas, Texas, a neurosurgeon. And Dr. Dunch, uh operated on a number of patients and had some uh, extremely bad outcomes. Uh, and it, I think the statistics that I saw were, and, and our, our guest Michelle can correct me if I'm wrong, but that he had operated on a total of 38 patients, 33 of which were injured and 20 of which had uh, permanent injuries or death. Uh, and so actually two people died during this. And, um, as we talked about in the previous show, um, there had been so many bad outcomes and so many, um, um, procedures going wrong, um, that, you know, that even doctors, news uh, personalities, and even some local lawyers, uh, were sort of raising the red flag about what was happening with him, but that nothing was really being done. The medical board Wasn't pulling his license. Uh, He was getting shipped from hospital to hospital. And so finally, uh, a a couple of uh, very brave doctors uh, decided to turn to the district attorney's office to see if the district attorney, the Dallas district attorney, would be. Uh, interested or, or open to pursuing criminal charges against uh, Dr. Dunch, and I want to remind everyone that if you want to hear a much more in depth discussion of what happened with Dr. Dunch, you can go to the doctor Death podcast that 's out on Wondery. it 's a fantastic uh, uh, web uh, uh, podcast and um, really gets in depth on the story of what happened with uh, with Dr. Christopher Dunch and the Uh, number of uh, patients who had uh, catastrophically bad outcomes with him. But so I say all that to lead up to who our guest is. I'm very excited to have on our guest, uh, Michelle Sugart, who's a Dallas assistant district attorney. And uh, and Michelle told me uh, a website where you can actually um, look her up. And so I'm going to go ahead and give it out. But you know, this is different than talking to uh, civil trial lawyers who usually are happy to give out how you can find out and, and learn more about them because they you might you know, get a case from them, where Michelle has reasons why uh, it might not always be best you know for people to know where to find her. But um, but Michelle is a, a, a assistant district attorney with Dallas County, and you can actually go to the DallasCounty.org forward slash government forward slash district attorney forward slash and you can uh, look up Michelle. Michelle, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great today. Thanks for
0: having me on. Um, I'm going to give a little background about you, Michelle, and I, what I should tell everybody is Michelle was the lead attorney on a, a, with a team of attorneys who ended up criminally prosecuting Dr. Dunge, uh for um, what he had done in the operating room. And so we're going to talk about that uh, a lot more. Um, but just to give you a little bit of background on um, on Michelle, Michelle uh, is a University of Florida grad. We won't hold that against her. Uh, and then she went to uh, SMU Law School and got her master's degree and now uh, actually uh, teaches a uh, course as a professor in dispute resolution. She also has uh, served as a private consultant uh, for hospitals and doctors and teaching them interpersonal skills and uh, has been a district attorney um, for a number of years and has had great results and then tried this very uh, what I would call unusual and unprecedented case involving a doctor um, and involving what happened in the operating room on from a criminal standpoint so Michelle uh, welcome to the show
2: thank you I am so excited that we get to talk to Michelle because I listened to the doctor death podcast I think Steve did too and we just just individually I don't even know if one of us recommended it to the other but we anyway we both had listened to it and when I was listening to those episodes it was easy to listen it it came more naturally to listen to what had happened from the perspective of the work that we do from sort of the medical malpractice civil lawyer aspect but when I learned on the podcast about the criminal investigation and that somebody sort of had the you know the the courage to take that on in kind of this unusual context, I was just so excited and I never thought I'd get to actually talk <laughs> to the lawyer who did it. So this is so exciting. <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, we got to, we, uh, we have to talk about that, Michelle, and we'll, t- we'll talk, uh, you know, a lot more about the facts of the case, but uh, I have to imagine that when you're with the, the Dallas D- district attorney's office, then looking into medical procedures and, and seeing what a doctor did or did not is probably not something you do on a daily basis.
1: Uh, No, not at all. (laughs) Normally, we're doing, you know, assaults and murders and thefts and drug cases. Um, We don't really deal with the medical stuff very much unless somebody has some injuries related to uh, a crime that's occurred.
0: Right. (laughs) It's
1: very unique having to learn all of this medicine.
0: Right. That was one of my questions is when this case came in, um, you know, and I don't know how uh, uh, criminal cases get assigned, but how how did you end up with a case that involved where, where there had been some, you know, and we'll... Um, Talk about it more, but there were some severely bad outcomes uh, in surgery, and to the point where um, you know some of the doctors who had reviewed Dr. Dunch's work thought maybe this guy's a fraud, maybe he's an impostor. You know, he just doesn't know what he's doing. But but uh, how do you how do you get that case? How do you decide to take on that case where you know it's going to be heavy in medicine? You're going to be dealing with expert witnesses and and things like that. How did how did that come about? Uh,
1: well, some of the the doctors and patients, and uh, Kay Van Way, who you previously talked to, had come to our office describing um, what was going on and what they were finding, and the investigation kind of started there, and there wasn't enough information at that time for our office to do anything, but over time as the civil cases investigated and hired experts and were able to figure out you know some of the details of everything then the they came back to our office and that's when i actually picked up the case and i i thought it was fascinating um i actually besides talking to the doctors and the the lawyers and the patients, I actually just Googled the case and read some articles and I found, you know, just what I was finding out there thought, well, this is something that we really need to continue to look into and try something different, even though we didn't know exactly how to uh, approach it initially.
2: Michelle, does it work? Um, you know, without getting into anything you're not allowed to talk about. Um, I think it's interesting to, um, you know, the criminal side of things that I think is so interesting to civil lawyers because I feel like, you know, I never did it and I think I barely learned it in law school, just enough to pass the bar. But in terms of your work, do you, in your office, do you get to sort of, do you have some control over what kind of matters you work on? Do you get to pick sort of the cases that you're interested in investigating or do they just get assigned to you and you sort of, um, you know, you you just work, dig into what you what you get
1: Um, normally they're just assigned to us and detectives have already handled it and done a lot of the investigation and so our job is to go you know clean finish cleaning it up and talk to the witnesses but at this time I was in a particular division where we did a lot of our own investigations it was a fraud division and um, I had heard my my boss my supervisor at the time just kind of talking about this case in general. And I just kind of took it over from her. Um, <laughs> she was very busy and I was super interested. And she was like, Michelle, if you keep working on this, I'm just going to give it to you. So that's kind of how I took it. <laughs> got range. it. Got it.
0: Yeah. And I was thinking about it because um, um, one of the things that they play on the Dr. Death podcast was an interview with Dr. Dunch that was done by uh, I, I think one of the detectives that was involved when he uh, or, you know got arrested. And I would imagine, you know, many times, uh, the defendants either don't say much or, um, or get a lawyer, and so they they you know don't get to be talked to. But Dr. Dunch in this case started talking quite a bit, and he started talking quite a bit about medicine. And I'm wondering how your did your detectives have experience with that, or did, were they just sort of letting them talk?
1: I think they were mostly just letting him talk. I mean, uh, sometimes defendants do talk. And certainly, uh, Christopher Dunch thought that he could explain his way out of anything. He was very, you know, in general, he's very charismatic and had talked his way in and out of a lot of things in the past. And so I think he thought he could do the same thing here. So when the detectives go and, and pick him up and arrest him and take him back to the station, they just, you know, lay it out there. Hey, we, you know, we've got this case and we have these charges on you. And he just starts talking and they don't really have to ask very many questions. They were not familiar with the, the medicine at that time. Um, but he was just um, giving his view on everything.
0: And, and how about you? Were you familiar with, with medicine at all? Or were you basically just learning this from scratch?
1: When I first picked it up, I, I had you know, some basic interest in medicine previously and knew some little things, but nothing in depth enough to understand what had gone on here. And so the uh, doctors that we worked with who had handled Dunges cases and experts that were hired really spent a lot of time explaining to me what neurosurgery should look like and the anatomy and the complications that can go with it and understanding what is a normal complication and what is not. Um, and Really, we had to dig into it that way. Um, but once we had him arrested, I had learned a lot of that because I had to know it in order to indict him and realize something had gone horribly wrong here.
0: Right, uh, and then, and I, I assume the doctors you're talking about, which were uh, on the podcast, were Dr. Henderson and Dr. Kirby, who had who had sort of taken this on and um, and really um, were trying everything they could in order to get Dr. Dunch from uh, from operating on anybody else.
1: Right. Yeah, the two, those two worked really hard to um, get him stopped and see this going forward and going through with everything. There's another doctor, uh, Dr. Martin Lazar, who uh, was hired by the plaintiff's attorneys to come in and review a bunch of Dunch's cases. and uh, He was a really big help for us too.
0: Okay. And then Dr., and as I understand it, Dr. Henderson and Dr. Lazar, were they your experts at trial?
1: Yes. Pretty much, they were also the civil experts, but they were my main experts because Dr. Henderson had treated some of Dunch's patients, and un, you know clearly knows um, neurosurgery. And then Dr. Lazar came in and just wrapped it all up. He had looked at most of Dunch's patients at that point. We had given him some extra ones to look at, even besides what the civil attorneys had given him. And they both uh, spent a lot of time explaining it all to me. And then when they came in and testified, they testified for free. Um, They testified, you know, that they thought it was their duty to do this, to make sure that he was stopped and that the public was informed about what was going on.
0: Well, and I'm just wondering, um, you know, so, how did you the as I understand it, you took a, a, some time figuring out what exactly could be charged uh, to Dr. Dunch for what he had done, and then I think settled on the case of Mary Eford uh, who and i 'll let you explain the medicine a little uh, better, but he had essentially uh, put a pedicle screw, screw into her um, her nerve canal and and it ended up amputating her um, l5 nerve root. Uh, and I think she had a drop foot, couldn't walk anymore. Um, tell, talk about how you went about figuring out what to charge, and um, and you know what charges you thought you could be successful on at trial. Uh,
1: we looked at a lot of different things in this case. We looked at some fraud. Um, we tried to see well, was there some some Medicare fraud that was going on here? Um, but ultimately, we realized that this is, this is really about the patients, and it was an assault that he had done. Um, Now, whenever a surgeon operates on a patient, uh, it's always an assault, right? They are cutting into them, but a patient is consenting to it. Um, However, in these cases, the patients were clearly not consenting to some of the things that he was doing in them. And so our idea was, well, we're going to go with an aggravated assault um, with a deadly weapon and causing serious bodily injury charge, which is a second-degree felony. Um, And then at some point, you know, we really, as we were looking at the cases, realized, well, Miss Mary Eford is over the age of 65, which makes her an elderly person. And that allowed us to charge him with injury to an elderly person, um, which gives a much larger range of punishment. It's a first degree felony, and um, really allowed us to explore deeper into the case what we were hoping to do.
0: Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need?
2: really great lawyers like me.
0: That is exactly right, really great (laughs) lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, They also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases?
2: I think I know where you're going with this, and I'm gonna say our website.
0: (laughs) Our website is a big one, and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does.
2: Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, Reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I
0: I definitely need some reputation management. I'd like to find out exactly what that does.
2: We need to look into that one a bit more. (laughs)
0: Uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital Law Marketing, they will tell you what local search means. And they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com.
2: Got it. So a lot of the, um, with with the injury to the elderly person with that charge is it, are the, a lot of the elements the same, but then the degree both of, I mean, I guess other than, you know, you also have to have to establish that it's an elderly person, but then it just, it gives you um, greater options in terms of, of sentencing and the, and the punishment saw it.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what it does. It it Actually, the way that it's charged is very interesting because it can include um, a state jail felony, a third-degree felony, or a first-degree felony, depending on what mental state the jury decided he was acting with. Um, so that was part of what we were dealing with at trial even was trying to convince the jury of the higher mental state so we could have the larger punishment range.
2: Right. I mean, that has to be challenging in terms of, establishing that mental state because you've got you have this you know you have a, a surgery it's it's you know it's not like a you know a burglary or um, you know a, a crime that I'm sure you see more of or that that would happen more in the criminal context you've got this thing where it must be difficult to sort of sort of establish state of mind and intent when you've got this you know medical atmosphere and it's Kind of hard to to explain why that would happen, why you, why you would even be in that situation in the first place. How did you how did you work with that to to get that across to the jury? Um,
1: well, there are a couple of things. So, in picking this charge with Mary's case, we um, we were trying two different ways on her case on its own. We thought it was so egregious the things that he did in the surgery that it could have stood alone. Mm-hmm. Um, that we felt like a jury could convict him of a crime for just what he did in that surgery. But we also, um, Justin Johnson in my office, came up with the idea of using the doctrine of chances um, and using um, the rule as 404B. And basically those two legal issues allowed us to delve deeper into um, the mental state because it can be so hard to prove what somebody is thinking, especially a doctor in a surgery and the behaviors um, that he's engaging in. Um, So the the idea behind the doctrine of chances is that there are events that are so unlikely, um, so unusual, that if it happens once, okay, that can kind of be contributed to an accident or a mistake. But if it happens a second or third or fourth time, then it really is much more likely that somebody is doing this intentionally or knowingly. And so we used that particular um, doctrine to uh, get in the other surgeries that Dunch had been doing, these other patients that he had been injuring to show his mental state that when he went into Mary Eford's surgery, um, he knew he was going to hurt her and that he had all these other patients who were also injured and that was giving him the information that he needed to say, you know what, I shouldn't be doing this. I, I need to stop and figure out what's
2: going on here. Got it. Wow. That makes sense. That's really interesting.
0: Yeah, I um, I, I saw that, and it, obviously that was a big part that uh, the defense in the case was not happy about was that that you were able to get in, um, not only you know what happened in Mary Eford's surgery, but in a number of the other patients with uh, Dr. Dunch and and um and what had gone wrong and the and you know just to remind some of our uh, uh our listeners, you know what some of those were included, you know an operation he did on his best friend, uh. Jerry Summers, who became a quadriplegic, Uh, he had operated on a school teacher named Kelly Martin, and she ended up uh, bleeding out and dying. And then at the time that he did Mary Eford's surgery, he had just uh, operated on uh, a woman named Floella Brown, who was literally dying while he was um, doing the surgery on Mary Eford. And a lot of people were questioning why he would even go forward with the surgery on Mary Eford when he's got this other patient who's struggling for her life. And, um, and, um, you know, and that's just some of the, the other surgeries that you were able to get in, um, and, and talk about to sort of, um, you know, show that, you know, any other doctor would have looked at this and would have said, okay, I, I shouldn't be operating, but not Dr. Dunge. He kept, uh, he just kept going forward.
1: Yeah. He, he kept going forward. He, you know, blamed everybody else for what was going on in the surgeries or was in denial about these patients being injured um, and that's all um, and those patients we felt like they were they were kind of in a row the very patients right before he got to Mary Eford and any surgeon will tell you that if they're having those bad outcomes, that they would stop themselves and figure out what is going on here. They would ask other doctors for help or they, um, even with, you know, if you have a quadriplegic and two deaths in a row, we had a lot of doctors say they would just never operate again because they couldn't live with those kind of outcomes. Um, but it didn't affect him at all.
0: Yeah. I think some of them even said that, you know, one, you know, um, Jerry Summers and you might just quit being a surgeon altogether. And, and that didn't seem to slow him down at all.
2: Right, exactly. it really is shocking and and you think i mean I think you think as just a person as just a as someone who's who's been a patient, you just think you either think the doctor's going to stop themselves and evaluate or someone else is going to stop the doctor you know and the, the the idea that that didn't happen you know to all these people when I was first learning about the story and listening to the doctor death podcast, I just was so shocked by that it's just we on our podcast we hear a lot of scary stories like that things that you think couldn't happen or shouldn't happen that that do happen you know secrets that are hid from the hidden from the public but this is just one of those things that it seems like the medical field is so regulated and there's so much paperwork and so many rules like the idea that this could have happened as many times as it did and that you all had this many instances to point to um to establish the mental state is just terrifying.
1: Yeah, no, I, we completely agree. And the events were in such a short period of time, you know, it all, all of his surgeries occurred in about 18 months, um, which probably helped him, keep moving on and moving forward, like he was Mm -hmm. moving from hospital to hospital, and um, they weren't taking the time to find out what had happened at the other locations where he was leaving. Um, There are quite a few failures in the system in general, you know, as patients we put a lot of faith in the system and in our, our doctors that everybody's doing the right thing and that they're watching out for patient safety and taking care of us. And I think that generally that is true. Um, but there are loopholes and ways to get around um, some of this reporting and information that the patients don't have access to. And all of that culminated in um, allowing him to, to get through and injure as many patients as he did.
0: Yeah. And I thought, you know, we, we, uh... You know, I, I thought it was interesting the way it was argued by the defense in this case, which was c- certainly different than, I think, the way Dr. Dunch felt about himself. Um, but, um, you, know, you know, and we talked about this with Kay, that, that you know, because of, uh, you know, certain things that have been done in Texas and, and some of the changes in the law, medical malpractice cases are much harder to go Uh, after. So it's much harder to find a a lawyer, a a civil lawyer willing to take those cases. And so, you know, so, so for instance, you know, you don't have Dr. Dunch being sued a number of times um, for what happened. And then the, um, you know, hospitals stand to make so much money off of a neurosurgeon um, that they're willing to, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word, sort of uh, turn a blind eye uh, to get a neurosurgeon in that, that can mean a lot of money for um, uh, for a hospital until you know once they have some bad outcomes. But what, what I thought was interesting about the the way the defense tried this case was, I mean, first it it, it was uh, it was almost backwards from the way uh, I would see a say a medical malpractice case where we would be saying uh, you know the doctor maybe didn't have the correct training or maybe didn't do something right. Obviously, that was what you were saying. But but that you were your point was that a that a well trained doctor. Uh, would recognize these things and then stop operating. And then the defense is, was saying he's not a well-trained doctor. He's a suboptimal trained doctor, and, uh, and he, he hasn't gotten the training. So he doesn't know that he's supposed to stop, and he's just, he's just a really bad surgeon, but he doesn't, he's not intending any of this. He's just, uh, he's just terrible at his job.
1: Right, and you know, they didn't have much to work with, I don't think. They couldn't defend his medicine. They could not find an expert who would get up there and say, well, no, the things he did in this surgery were correct. <laughs> right. I mean, no legitimate doctor is going to get up there and defend what he did. So all they could go with was, well, um, it's everybody else's fault, which is kind of what... Um, dunch had been saying all along it wasn't his fault that you know this happened over here or that um you know blaming his training was all that they had left to do
0: i, I was wondering as i was reading that and i you know we read parts of your trial transcript i assume that dr dunch never testified at trial is that right
1: Right. He
0: did not. Okay. But did you all watch him when his lawyers are calling him this poorly trained doctor and, uh, you know, basically somebody who doesn't know what he's doing? I mean, because to hear the way he had portrayed himself to his patients and uh, what everybody and, you know, and to his friends or, or girlfriends, you know, he seemed like he was the most confident guy in the room. I mean, what was, was, were you picking up on any reaction from him when his lawyers were saying that stuff about him?
1: he wasn't reacting to very much at all during the trial in general. And I think that's very strategic. A lot of defense lawyers will uh, tell their clients don't react to anything that's being said because otherwise you get defendants to or making these facial expressions and moving around. And especially Dunch is very, Um, he likes to write a lot and scribble and and whisper in his attorney's ears and they're trying to focus. And so I think that they must have told him just sit there and listen to it. Don't um, react to anything because you never know how a jury is going to take that. And so he sat very still the entire time, kind of looked down. Sometimes uh, every now and then would look up at the people who were testifying. Um, And I, I think later we found out his attorneys told us that it wasn't until He heard all of the doctors getting up there and saying all of the things that he had done wrong that he even realized that he had done been doing something wrong that he might have been contributing to this. That's uh, where what was part of his mental state is his his ego was so large that um, he just wasn't allowing himself to believe those things.
2: It's just it's just crazy. But I mean, but it is a good point that um i mean it's a practice point i guess for everyone is that it's just amazing what what juries will notice um for your client or for the lawyers while you're sitting there and and you think that they're they're watching the person who's speaking but i mean they don't miss anything i i can't remember if we talked about it on the podcast or not but after one trial we had we got to talk to the jury afterwards and one came right up to me and i was i was really excited to hear you know some insights about how the trial went. And the first thing she asked me was why I never wore heels.
0: (laughs) And I was like,
2: how did you even spot that? I barely even did anything in this trial in front of the jury. So, I mean, it just goes to show you whether you do civil or criminal, they're always watching. They don't miss anything,
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, they have nothing else to do, right? They can't look at their phones, they're not distracted by anything, they're listening to the testimony and staring out at what everybody in the courtroom is doing, so right? Right, fascinating so, to see what they pick up on,
2: yeah. Well, so speaking of the jury, I don't, um, I don't know really have a good understanding of how it works in Texas, um, but I'm curious how jury selection worked in this case. Did you have A lot of potential jurors who had heard about the case in the news. How 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 did jury selection go? We did it. It took a few days. We
1: had to bring in a couple different panels and give them questionnaires, and the questionnaires covered a lot of different topics, like what kind of dealings did they have in the medical field? Had they heard anything about this case in the press? Because all of that kind of needed to be screened out to see would they be affected by anything that they had heard? Um, and then we did just the big word um one day with a panel and ended up with a fantastic jury. Um, they, they were very smart, they were very attentive. Um, also, you know, we had to screen for time because the trial we estimated would take three to four weeks and it did go a little bit over three weeks. Um, so just finding jurors who could take that amount of time on, off of their work um, was also really important
2: right yeah i mean i didn't even think about that so you've got you've got the whole press angle on top of you know people who might have a medical background that's going to sort of throw off how how they're looking at the case so you've really got a lot of factors in there to kind of work through before you can get a jury yeah we we
1: had to talk to them about it quite a bit and you know at the end of the day they were fantastic they hung on every word that the witnesses were saying they had to learn neurosurgery during the trial because they also had to know you know what was what was he doing wrong here and was it actually wrong and so the doctors would get up there and explain um you know the anatomy and how things were supposed to look and about halfway through the trial the jurors were just nodding along and kind of already knew what the doctor was going to say they got it they understood it and so they were very attentive um And in fact, after the trial, um, they all bonded during the trial and they stay in contact to this day and they sent the victims in this case letters, um, just sympathizing with what they have gone through. So really one of the best juries we've ever had here.
2: Wow.
0: Yeah, really. Um, Well, I I wanted to talk to you about some of the other evidence. So so you had uh, evidence um, to show that this wasn't uh, just by chance that, that something went wrong, that um, this had happened on multiple occasions and that, you know, any uh, any good doctor would have just stopped practicing and he wasn't doing that. And that goes towards your intent. Uh, you know, there, there's lots of talk um, on the podcast and I'm just wondering how much of this came in the trial about him having substance abuse issues showing up uh, for surgeries where people thought he might be, you know, under the, the influence of, of, you know, drugs or alcohol. Um, and then of course there's the, uh, email that I, w- I want to make sure that we talk about that, um, that was sort of hotly contested by both sides. What what other type of evidence did you get in to show sort of his knowledge and then his, um, you know, state of mind for criminal activity?
1: Um, regarding the, the substance stuff, they, the judge actually kept out, um, any testimony related to drugs, uh, the judge ruled early on that it wasn't going to come in. We had a lot of um, ancillary um, events that we had heard about. That he, you know, kept a bottle of vodka under his desk. That somebody had found some cocaine in his bathroom at work and flushed it down the toilet. That maybe he was, you know, snorting it out of pens while he was, you know, driving um, to Memphis was kind of all over the place. Um, But the judge didn't feel like it was relevant enough, um, being that it is what we consider an extraneous offense. So he ruled that it had to stay out of the trial. Um, It did slip in here and there. Um, So we admonished all of our witnesses ahead of time, you know, don't mention that you saw white powder under his nose and don't mentioned that you know that you heard that he does drugs uh, but some of them forgot that admonishment and it came in (laughs) here and there and of course the the defense objected and um, the judge told the witness you know don't say anything like that again but we we moved forward and um, I think they found that it was an error so um, it was just kind of here and there and around but um, our case was certainly not based on that even though I do think that that was a contributing factor to his mental state.
0: Okay. And, and then, and then from what I understand, the, the, the way he was charged or what the, what the jury had the option to do is they could have found either he was negligent or they could have found he was reckless or they could have found he acted knowingly and or intentional to walk through what the, the jury's, what their options were, and how you got him to the that highest level of knowledge and intent.
1: Um, Yeah, those were exactly their options. So if they found him criminally negligent, it would have been a state jail felony, which is the lowest level felony, and it would have been um, a maximum punishment of two years in prison. If they found that he was reckless in things he was doing, that's kind of the next mental state up, then that's a third degree felony with a little bit larger punishment range. Uh, But we were really going for the intentionally and knowingly, which is the highest uh, mental state's and gave us the largest range of punishments. So the jury had to look at uh, the definitions of each of those and make a decision on where did they fit in. Um, we argued that uh, he did this intentionally and knowingly based on the fact that he knew, he is the only person who knew about all of his bad outcomes, who had patients that were coming and telling him the the things that they were feeling afterwards, that they were in pain, that they had um, new problems that were caused by him. He, of course, knew that he'd been kicked out of hospital after hospital. He knew that he was being sued. Lawyers, uh, Civil lawyers had filed lawsuits against him. The Texas Medical Board was investigating him um, because patients had filed complaints. So he he had been sent a cease and desist letter uh, by a lawyer, and so he basically he is the only one who had all of this knowledge going into um, Mary Eford's surgery. Um, and so, with that sort of background, he had to have known that he was likely to hurt her. I mean, you you don't have that many bad outcomes in a row and not go into the next surgery thinking, oh, gee. Uh, I'm not going to hurt anybody this time, even though I've hurt my last six patients in a row. Um, And then also in her surgery in particular, uh, what he was doing was very egregious. I mean, he left in the middle of the surgery to go take care of another patient, um, leaving her open, her back wide open on the operating table. He put the the device in that's supposed to stabilize, supposed to go into the spine, the vertebrae, um, he put that into the muscle, and it's very clear when you're not in the, the correct place. Not only is it kind of squishy and you don't get any sort of hold. Um, but then they can see on, uh, the fluoroscopy, which is like an X-ray in the middle of surgery that it's just not in the right place. I mean, they very specifically have it for that. And so he knew when he was in the surgery that he was doing these horrible things to her and that he was hurting her. And everybody in that surgery was telling him, um, that, you know, you're not in the right place. You're, you're doing this wrong. This is going to cause severe damage. And he just kept doing it anyway. And eventually just sewed her up and left it like that.
0: No. so so when when the other people are telling him he's in the wrong place, what was his response? Did he just say, "You don't know what you're talking about I'm the neurosurgeon
1: yep, that's pretty much how it is the The neurosurgeon is the um in charge they're the only ones who've been trained in it they're you know the ones who went to medical school they're they're the leader of the pack there in the surgery room, and so they get to uh, make all the decisions and everybody else. Um, around him, of course, they've been in lots of these surgeries. They know what it's supposed to look like and they know what their particular job is and, and how that's supposed to play out. And he was just ignoring everything they were telling him, all of them, um, all the the nurses, the scrub techs, the radiologists were telling him, you're, you're hurting her. This is in the wrong place. And he just he said, nope, I can see it with my eyes. None of you can see what's going on here. Um, you're all wrong. I'm correct. And this is this is perfect. He was actually very excited about it, making up all sorts of words, things that don't exist, like tricortical. And yeah, uh, they were like, we don't, we don't even know what that means. That's not a word. And he was very excited about it.
0: Yeah, I, I saw you uh, mention that in your closing, that how excited he was to mention tricortical. What was that supposed to mean?
1: Uh, I have no idea. No, it's not a
2: word. Nobody else knew what he meant when he was saying that. (laughs) (laughs) My gosh. Um, well, Michelle, you and I were talking a little bit about before we started recording about everything that goes into trial and, 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 you know, one of the things is wrangling your witnesses, make sure they're there when you need them there. And, and, and that sort of thing with this case. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you decided who to have there for the people that couldn't be there, what you did to kind of preserve their testimony and and how you decided um, when and how to present that to the jury. Um, That's kind of a big question. (laughs) That is a big question. Um, So starting, I guess, with you
1: said the person, the people we couldn't have there. Um, The only person we couldn't really bring in was Jerry Summers, um, it was Christopher Dunch's uh, best friend that he'd made a quadriplegic because Jerry lives in Memphis and is not able to get around very easily. And it would have been um, extremely expensive to transport him to Texas because he needs constant medical care. He, he always has to have a nurse with him, helping him um, just to function in general. And it would have been a huge strain on him um, physically and emotionally, I think. So we ended up doing a deposition, which is extremely rare in criminal trials. Um, We almost never do them. This is actually the first time in my 14 years that I had ever done a deposition. So we uh, went out there to Memphis and and did that and ended up playing it for the jury. Um, The rest of the witnesses, during the main trial, I think we called something like 38 witnesses. Um, so a lot of, luckily I had some people to help me wrangle those witnesses and bring them together. We would call the patient and then we would call a, a doctor who um, either was in the operating room or most of the time had treated the patient afterwards to explain what had gone wrong. And then we would call any other people who may have something to add that was unique to their that patient's particular case, any of the nurses that may have been in there, any family members who may have seen Um, some of the things that were going on uh, with Christopher Dunch. Um, And so we just kind of laid them out in order. Um, In chronological order. Yeah. In chronological order. Got it. Because I started, I put Mary on first because it, I felt like the jury needed to see her, you know, very first witness coming in and she was in a wheelchair and just a very sweet lady um, and told her story and kind of gave the jury the idea. Dr. Henderson also testified and said, you know, what went wrong here? And then we went back in time and put the, all the patients in chronological order leading up to Mary Eford's surgery. So the jury could see exactly what Dunch knew and when he knew it um, before he got to Mary's surgery. So that was kind of how we, approached the main case, and then we wrapped it up on the on the back end of that with Dr. Lazar, who had reviewed all of those patients' records and was able to reaffirm what some of the other doctors had said and give his own opinions on all the things that had gone wrong there. And then we did something very similar in punishment, <laughs> um, because that's kind of like a, a second a separate part of the trial once the jury finds him guilty, then we do punishment. And we had all these other victims that the jury had not heard about, and so we called them and their doctors and maybe some family members to go with that, too.
2: Got it, got it. And your jury I can't remember, Steve, if we met if we mentioned this at the beginning, but um, and your jury was able to pick, um, I, I never knew this until law school, but a lot of times you know, the, the jury finds if the defendant's guilty or not guilty, and then a judge um, does the sentencing. But in, in your case, the jury picks the sentence.
1: Right. Exactly. So in Texas, um, the defendant can choose whether they want the judge or the jury to do the sentencing. Oh, okay. Um, and in, in this case, he, Christopher Dunch had chosen to go to the jury. Um, so that's why they got to make that decision. Do you
0: you think that was, uh, I mean, uh, I know you never like to talk about the judges you're in front of, but did they have the uh, belief that maybe the judge was going to be tough on sentencing? I don't think,
1: I don't, I don't think that that's why they made the, the defense made the decision they um, did to go to the jury. The judge in this case is very fair. He's, he's always very um, straight and arrow and everybody, um, he gives each side a chance to say what they need to say. And he looks at the law and makes appropriate decisions and make sure everybody's following it, uh, the law and doing what they need to do. And he was very good about that in this case. Um, I think that they decided to go to the jury because they thought a jury might have empathy for uh, Christopher Dungeon. Um, you know, you, when you've got to get 12 people to agree on something, you've got a greater likelihood of either a hung jury or that somebody is going to feel really bad for him and want to do a lighter sentence and drag, you know, any other jurors down in their punishment range than they may have otherwise uh, found. So, you know, 12 people versus one people making that decision often favors the defendant.
2: Got it. So, so do defendants in your cases usually pick the jury to do the sentencing?
1: Uh, it's kind of 50-50. A lot of times they will go to the jury, but if they, they know the judge and um, know that a particular judge is lenient because somebody needs you know, drug treatment or um, has had a particularly hard life, the judge is um, sympathetic to some circumstances, then um, they go to the judge just as often. And it's it's quicker too. So if they're, you know, if the main fight was mm-hmm. during whether this person was guilty, and then you get to punishment, then uh, we just kind of wrap it up sometimes by going to the judge.
2: Got it.
0: You know, and I, I guess we, we shouldn't hold out the uh, um, outcome anymore. And we I usually say it right at the beginning. But what would happen in this case is uh, he was found guilty uh, of uh, assault with a deadly weapon. Um, it, and it was found to be intentional or knowingly. And he was sentenced to, uh, to life in prison. Is that right?
1: Yes, yeah, that's right. Injury. And that's if, that's if what you injuries, asked for, right? Yeah. yeah, that's what we asked for. I mean, my my biggest concern was during the guilt phase. You know, would a jury find a doctor guilty of something? We couldn't. We couldn't find any other cases where somebody had had tried a surgeon for things that they had done in the operating room just based on their surgical skills. And so, you know, that was our that was the big question. Is will a jury do it? Will they, do they think that this is a crime? Right. And, uh, if they do think it's a crime, uh, what level of um, mental state are they going to find? You know, clearly I wanted the largest punishment range because I felt like if I could get the guilty verdict and get into the punishment phase that once a jury heard about all of the other patients, um, not just the six that we put on in the main case, but you know, all of the other patients that he had operated on and injured that, uh, I was really hoping and thought that a jury would go with a life sentence on that because my main argument was he gave all of these patients a life sentence, right? They are living their lives in pain, they're living their lives without loved ones, people who have died, um, and they will have these consequences for the rest of their life because of things that he did and therefore he should have a
2: life sentence. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS.
0: Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked?
2: No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS.
0: Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury, these are the experts.
2: They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier.
0: They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials Podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. One question I have, and this is because of my lack of knowledge when it comes to criminal law, but I mean, I I understand that usually a defendant doesn't like to take the stand because it, you know, subjects him to a a lot of cross. And I guess I'm wondering in a case like this, where the sentencing portion was separate, could Dr. Dunch have taken the stand in the sentencing portion and then basically just got up there and said he was sorry?
1: He could have. Um, I'm not sure how well that would have gone for him. I don't know if he was sorry, or if he had processed the whole trial and gotten to the point where he felt like anything was his fault. Um, his attorneys clearly didn't think it was a good idea to put him on the stand. I think right. he, if he, you know, if they had said, yes, this is a good idea that he would definitely have taken the stand. So they must have been telling him, um, this is not going to work out for you. Don't do that. They did call some of his family members to get up there and talk about him and, you know, explain who he was as a person, um, in their lives and the positive things that they felt like he had done, uh, with his life in general. Um, but I'm not sure taking the stand would have done a lot for him. Um, we can listen to their jail calls, whether in jail. And so, um, we did that and at no point in listening to his jail calls, did he ever express any sort of remorse, uh, for anything that had Happened or transpired, it was always about blaming other people. So it wouldn't surprise me if that's where he still was um, at that point in the trial. And I don't think that would have played well with the jury.
0: No, (laughs) I mean you're right. I mean, listening to just what we could on the on the podcast, I mean, he he definitely doesn't sound like somebody who is remorseful or thought that he did anything wrong. Um, So yeah, I I I see your point that if he had taken the stand, I mean, that he's just going to, you know. He, it would be a long cross-examination. Um,
2: right. And, and I mean, especially to, I, you know, the, we have a transcript of the Europe closing statements in the, in the punishment phase and, and I found it to be really moving. I think even having listened to the podcast, you know, the podcast sort of, um, sort of rolls the story out in a certain way and seeing you know, all these tragedies and all these outcomes and people um, and the constant pain they're in or, or families who've, who've lost a member of their family, seeing it all listed pretty close together and concisely <laughs> in, this, in the closing statements is really, um, I think, it really got it across in a different way, I think, even in the podcast to see in just in one place how many, as you said, how many people were, were basically serving their own life sentences in terms of their... Their pain and their suffering. So i i wouldn't uh, I wouldn't even put a pretty good witness up against that. I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, the,
1: just a, a comment on that is the jurors were, you know, when we're doing the punishment phase and calling some more of the witnesses, the jurors were literally crying when some of these witnesses were testifying. We would see, you know, one would start and then another would start, and there was there was one lady who her husband testified first. Her name was Jacqueline Troy, and so Mr. Troy testifies first about um, his wife's surgery and how things were horrible and the doctors were telling him she was gonna die and um, she had you know this massive infection and he's crying on the stand and the jurors are crying on the stand and then he gets off of the stand um, And I guess we didn't make it clear that she lived because the jury was all crying. And then she walks in the courtroom and they see her and they were just completely relieved. And and so that was a a really moment, I think, just understanding for us, even understanding how in tune our jury was with what was going on with the patient's.
0: Um, Michelle, one thing I, I didn't uh, mention that I thought was interesting, and as you, we've already discussed that, um, you know, this is an unusual case for, um, you know, basically a, for a doctor to be criminally prosecuted for something that happened in the operating room. Uh, I can't think of when I've ever heard of it happening before. Um, but um, one thing I thought was interesting about when you, so when you have, you're charging him with a assault with a deadly weapon. The deadly weapon in this case was essentially his hands, right? His, because, or his hands and the surgical tools, I assume? Right.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Okay. I mean, talk through that a little bit about how you, you got that concept across to the jury, because I'm I'm not sure everybody would see that, you know, uh, right off the bat that, you know, his hands are the deadly weapon.
1: Um, So we, you know, when we normally think about a deadly weapon, we're thinking about a knife or a gun that's being used in a stabbing or a shooting. Um, and it, the deadly weapon aspect has an effect on the on punishment, on how much time he's going to have to serve on, on parole. And so um, we wanted to make sure that that was in there as an option for the jury to consider. And we weren't sure exactly what they might consider a deadly weapon. So a surgeon going in there, they're they're technically assaulting you with the um, the surgical tools, right? The the scalpel that they're cutting you with. Um, but in this case, you know, we also alleged that he had put a pedicle screw in the wrong place, and that that was what was causing the injury. And so, well, I I guess that's could also be a deadly weapon if you're putting that into um, an artery that is going to cause a person to bleed out or Causing them some sort of permanent damage um, with that screw. Um, and then his hands, uh, we allege because, well, maybe the jury would consider, you know, a surgeon works with their hands and those are the tools that he's actually using. So we went ahead and put that in there and gave them all of those options to work with so that they could make that decision on what did they consider to be an actual deadly weapon.
0: Yeah, I thought it was very interesting and 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 uh, very um, you know very good and very creative lawyering uh, in that case. And y'all did a did a great job. Uh, one thing we haven't talked about is this uh, this email that he wrote uh, to his I think then girlfriend who also worked for him. Um, and I, I can't tell you the whole context of the email, but in somewhere in the email, he refers to himself as a one of a kind. Motherfucker, stone cold killer. Um, Talk about how you use that email and and I'm sure the jury wasn't happy to read about or see that.
1: Um, We found the email just very interesting to me. It it seems like a kind of a cocaine fueled rant, but Mm -hmm. it also gives a lot of insight into uh, how he thinks about himself and uh, his relationship with the world and with his patients. And that's really what we put it in for. Was again going back to proving his mental state. What is what does he know and what is he thinking? Um, this is his words. This is his insight into um, how he is viewing the world. Um, and very clearly in in the email, he is talking about how you know he can pretty much do whatever he wants. Um, he you know thinks says that people think of him as a mix between. Um, god einstein and the antichrist and um, you know just that tells you a lot about who he is and what he was thinking when he was going into these surgeries and that's why we put it in um, because it when he writes that email it's pretty much right before uh, these patients that we put on during trial started getting injured so it, it's something, you know, that he he writes, and then all of a sudden all these patients are getting injured after that and leading to these devastating outcomes. So we just wanted to give that jury, you know, some insight into um, how he was thinking um, when they were making those decisions.
2: Yeah, which I think is appropriate because I remember hearing part of that on the podcast, and it's just like, it's another level of, scary but (laughs) it's just really scary i mean that that you know the outlook and the way that like you said the way he was talking about himself versus sort of the world and other people i i would think it would be a real disservice to the victims if the jury were not able to hear about that
1: yeah and i mean the defense of course objected um that you know he was it's what we call you know, extraneous offenses and that it would be prejudicial for the jury to hear it. But the judge ultimately agreed with us that it did give insight into his mental state. Now, when, I think when we talked to the jurors afterwards, they didn't put that much uh, credence into it.
2: Oh, I, really? You know,
1: it was something, you know, interesting little tidbit, but I don't think it weighed that much into um, their decision on finding him guilty. So it's always good to
2: get feedback on that. Yeah, wow, that surprises me.
0: Yeah. So you, you mentioned that uh, you talk were able to talk to the jurors afterwards, and we you know, we talked to lawyers from all over the country, and they're not always able to do that. What? Um, how? What did the jury have to say afterwards?
1: Um, they mostly, you know, just talked about the um, about the uniqueness of the case, and that we we're trying to find out, you know, what made you decide to go with this intentional and knowing versus uh, maybe the reckless or the criminally negligent. And they didn't, they spent some time on it. They had deliberated for about four hours to come to this guilty verdict. But um, mostly they, you know, with all the evidence found it overwhelming. And uh, I don't think the decision was that hard for them. They, they had some, they always have questions for us, you know, what other evidence is there that they didn't right. hear <laughs> right, yeah. like that. So <laughs> they, they like to know what's going on behind the scenes. Um, but I think that they did the appropriate thing and considered the law
0: correctly. Yeah. So uh, I guess I'm wondering, uh, it, it, well, first of all, let me ask you, have you had any other cases like this that, uh, you know, because it seems like such an unusual case.
1: Yeah, no, nothing like this. <laughs> I'm not not before then and not since then. And I don't, I doubt that I'll ever see anything like this again in my career. Uh, I've after the trial and as this has gotten some publicity, I've had other counties reach out to me and asking questions on how do we do this and that. And um, you know, we I regularly get phone calls from people who have been injured by their doctors and um, want us to look into it. But um, I, I just don't think that there's uh, in my Uh, tenure here going to be another case exactly like this, uh, that we're going to be prosecuting. I think it's very rare. Most doctors are trying to do the right thing and and doing good things. Um, There are some some bad ones out there, though, who hopefully are stopping themselves because they're hearing about this case.
0: Right, right, absolutely. And I guess I'm just wondering, you know, I, I saw in your closing that you did talk about that that or you acknowledged that the system sort of broke down here, and that was certainly a big part of the defenses case. Uh, what are your thoughts on that as far as I mean, because it, it does seem like that if if the system had stepped in earlier, whether it's the medical board, whether it's you know the hospitals and, and using this national database system, uh, you know, or or even just, you know, getting sued civilly uh, might have been able to at least limit the amount of people that uh, that got injured. I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that.
1: Um, yeah, I think that there's a lot of things that played into it. Um, some of it's in the medical board uh, moves pretty slow, but, you know, for good reason. They get a lot of complaints where, you know, you know, they're not going to reach out and and take a doctor's license just because a patient is angry at their doctor. So they, you know, move slowly. Um, The hospital's, Of course, had their own concerns. Um, If we're, you know, the the hospitals early on, um, like Baylor Plano, they didn't know initially that he wasn't any good. There was there was no prior warning there. And after a couple of bad incidents, they they got him out of there. Um, Some of the later hospitals, uh, however, didn't do all of the work that they should have done in finding out what had happened at Baylor and previous hospitals that he had been at. So I think that that was kind of a failure um, relating to them doing their due diligence and figuring out, you know, their background research on a doctor before hiring them and, and letting him operate on patients. And then, of course, there is this National Data Bank uh, problem. There are some loopholes where per, uh, the, they don't have the hospitals don't have to report a doctor don't have to turn something in, and so that information doesn't get disseminated out. And really, that information doesn't make it to the public anyway. That stays in the back channels uh, where only the hospitals that have have that information. So I think one of the biggest problems is that patients don't have access to good information about their their physician's previous history. Right. That's one of the biggest problems, and I don't know that there's an easy answer to that.
2: Did you get a sense from the jury um, what they thought, and sort as to the defense of of this sort of being a breakdown of the system?
1: Uh, I think they agreed with it. I think that they they agree that there's a lot of breakdowns in the system, and they're you know, have the same fear that you and I have now after um, looking at this case Yeah. that any of us should have, that this could happen again. Not really anything has changed. And so I think the jury agreed with that. They just didn't think that it excused anything that he had done because ultimately it came back to, he's the one who did it. And he's the one who um, didn't police, police himself and didn't stop himself and kept going.
2: Right.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, and one thing I, I forgot to mention, I wanted to ask you about it because uh, I was trying to figure out what the defense was doing here, but they seemed like they were blaming Dr. Foley, the, the doctor who had trained him at the University of Tennessee, um, for not uh, letting others know. Um, and I, I I just, I didn't think that would go very far from a defense standpoint, but I was just wondering how that evidence, um, did, was Dr. Foley called it as a witness?
1: No, he he was not called as a witness. Um, the defense did blame his his training out there, and Doctor Foley was just one of the doctors who trained him out there. And uh, but that was all that they had to go with was he wasn't trained properly, and so he didn't know that he was doing the wrong thing. Um, and of course, we argued that well he went to one of the best schools and trained under some of the best people. And, you know, even if he um, is an incompetent surgeon and can't perform with his hands, um, that he still, you know, was trained and told that these are bad outcomes. Right. Looking for these things. And really, I don't think that, I mean, common sense will tell you as a person, you don't even have to have the medical training to tell you, oh, I'm hurting somebody here. I've had, I've made my best friend a quadriplegic. I've killed two people. So, hey, let me, you know, I probably need to stop. I don't think you need medical training for that.
2: Right. Right. I was going to say, I didn't even take biology 101, but I'm pretty sure I could figure out that these were bad outcomes. Right.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. And so that defense, I don't think didn't go very far.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, and as I saw, you know, you all made the the point of, you know, he didn't even know when he was going into muscle or bone and Even most average jurors, uh, you know, or the average person on the street knows when you're cutting a steak or cutting into a piece of meat, you know when you're in meat or you're in bone. I mean, so there's really no explanation for how he could be in the wrong place there.
1: Right, exactly. And one of our doctors, I believe Dr. Henderson, testified on the stand that putting, you know, the tools that these doctors are using are literally like carpenter's tools. They're using drills and they're using screws. And so any one of us can imagine trying to drill and put a school screw, screw into raw tuna is how he described it, that you're going to know that you're not going to get any sort of purchase there versus if you're putting it into uh, the stud and the wall. Um, and I, that's very relatable. I think most of us can understand
2: that.
0: Yeah. 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 Oof well uh well michelle this has been a great talk I, I, is there anything else that you'd like to our listeners to know about this case that we haven't uh, had had a chance to talk about
1: um I think you know I think those are kind of the main things there's there was all sorts of fun little side effects that came in um you know a trial one of the a couple of the nurses testified that Dunch would operate in the same surgical scrubs every day and that they knew that because there was a hole in the scrubs and they could see his butt because he didn't wear underwear. Oh, my
0: gosh. <laughs> oh, God.
1: Okay. You know, just lots of little fun, strange tidbits where you're kind of like, what, this, this happened? Like, this, yeah. this kind of thing goes on. Um,
2: yeah, so, so some of that stuff was a surprise even to you while they yeah, were absolutely. testifying? Yeah, wow. absolutely.
1: Uh, and that so many of them testified to the same thing. We weren't even aware that they all had witnessed the same thing. So that was interesting. And um, at one point we were struggling to get records from one of the hospitals. Uh, It was Southampton hospital, which had been bought out by then by university general hospital because the, the hospital itself had um, gone bankrupt and, but the patient records were locked inside the hospital. And so the hospital as an entity said, well, those are our records, but we can't get to them because they're in a building owned by the bank. And the bank said, well, we can't give you those patient records because um, even though they're in our building, we don't own the records. And so we had to execute a search warrant to, and basically oh my gosh. told them, we're going to come kick in your door. You can either let us in or <laughs> uh, we're just going to knock down. And then once we got in there and we're looking for those patients' files, um, we couldn't find them with the normal files. Uh, but we went around the corner into another room and found all of them in boxes labeled bad doctors
0: <gasps> what they had, already,
1: they had already pulled them aside probably because of the lawsuits but that's where they were found so it was kind oh. of <laughs> oh my god well, wow. that's awesome I mean, it's terrible, but that's awesome. A box labeled bad
2: doctors.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. And, uh, you know, who knows how many other bad doctors? Are there? I know. Right. I know the right. fact that it wasn't just
2: bad doctor, singular. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. exactly. Oh, my gosh. Oh, well. that's awesome. That, that is exactly the kind of fun tidbit that we want people to share when we're yeah. like, anything else? <laughs> yeah, to talk exactly. about? Yeah. <laughs> Our investigators had a good time doing that. I think.
0: Yeah. Oh, I'm oh sure. Gosh. I'm sure. Yeah. You know, that's one thing we've never really done on this show is we should, you know, have the, uh, the, there's always good stories or tidbits that come out of every trial and any interesting things that happen. So we, we never really have uh, have gone down those, but those are, those are definitely good.
2: Well, it's just really awesome. I think Michelle. I know I said this um, at the beginning when I was fangirling, but um, wh- I listened to this podcast with my mom when we were um, um, taking a road trip, and I, we both. I think the podcast got this across, but we both were like, you know, that takes that takes guts. I think from a district attorney's office, and for a district attorney to sort of take this on without there being much of a Um, a precedent for it or a roadmap or examples to go by um, for you all to take this on and and, um, get justice for these people. I think is really admirable.
1: Well, thank you. I I appreciate that. We we worked really hard on it and had no idea where it was going to end up and where it was going to lead, but felt like it was something that really needed to be investigated and something that we needed to at least try to get justice in this way for all of the patients that he had injured.
0: Yeah, well, it's tremendous work. I, I guess I'm just wondering: was there anybody in the office, and don't name names, but who was like, you know, what is Michelle doing? Why is she working on that case?
1: <laughs> um, probably everybody right. <laughs> had that thought at some point or another. But once you once you sit people down and really lay it out for them and explain, you know, what we're doing here and all the horrible things that he did, by the end, everybody's on board.
0: There. Right. Right.
1: Saying, "Yeah, go get them. They're, it, this is definitely a crime."
0: Yeah. Well, it's tremendous work, and we've uh, had just a great time talking to you, Michelle. And we and I want to remind our listeners, we've been talking to Michelle Shugert from the uh, Dallas uh, District Attorney's Office. Michelle is an assistant district attorney there. Uh, and uh, if you want to look her up, you can go to dallascounty.org forward slash government forward slash district attorney forward slash. Michelle, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, I really appreciate it, y'all. It's been fun.
0: Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we've we uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. and we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com as well as a, a glossary of the legal terminology on the Uh, website.
2: Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at com note if you have something mean to say we don't have email right exactly
0: <laughs> we only need a uh, positive commentary yeah,
2: we're fragile yeah. um you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify google play or wherever again if you have something mean to say um